We're in Revelation chapter 8 tonight. You follow along as I read the text, beginning at verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. Now just think about that for a minute. We'll get into the dimensions of that in a few minutes. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word and your people who are out here tonight to partake of it. We pray that you would bless our time. Lord, you are a sovereign God, an amazing God, and we are just so thankful and fortunate to have a relationship with you. We certainly do not deserve that, but we thank you for grace that has reached into our lives that will keep us out of these events we're studying here in this book of Revelation. I pray your blessing on it this evening, Lord. Use this time to minister to our minds and hearts, and we will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how anybody can actually come to the conclusion theologically we're in the tribulation. I don't get it. I mean, I read these passages, I go, show me where this has happened. Show me anywhere in history where this stuff has happened. And I don't know how anybody in their right mind can claim we're in the 1,000-year millennium. We're certainly, when we're looking around this world, not experiencing the righteous bliss of a millennial existence. It's just a misinterpretation of a book like Revelation. The book of Revelation makes it clear when you get to chapter 4, the church is gone. They're not involved at all in what we're learning here, but we are seeing here what God wants us to know about what's going to happen in the future. Now, the tribulation judgments have been pouring out of heaven at this point when we come to this chapter, and billions of people have died, at least over two billion people have died in the first six sealed judgments of Revelation chapter 6, but the tribulation is far from over. This time of God's wrath is not yet done. 
In fact, when we come to Revelation 8, we come to the most ferocious part of the Great Tribulation. We would say this is the worst part of the Great Tribulation. And it's here where Jesus Christ breaks open that seventh seal, which is the final seal, and it contains the final and most ferocious judgments of God. Now, when people say they think they are in the Great Tribulation, I just say, show me Revelation 6 to 8 where that's happened. Just show me anywhere in history. There's never been a point in time when these things have happened, ever. They're yet to happen, and perhaps soon to happen. Now, this seventh seal tribulation judgment actually contains the seven trumpet judgments, four of which we will see tonight are found in this chapter. The seventh seal tribulation judgment also contains the seven bowl judgments. Now, the first four trumpet judgments occur here in chapter 8. The fifth and sixth trumpet judgments occur in chapter 9. And then we'll get one of those parentheses in chapters 10 to 11. And then the seventh trumpet judgment will occur at the end of chapter 11 and will include those final seven bowl judgments. Now, the first four trumpet judgments we're going to look at tonight are God's wrath against nature. And he is going to pour out his wrath against nature. The fifth and sixth trumpet judgments will be God's wrath against man. And, of course, man will suffer when he's pouring out his judgments against nature, but they'll specifically be aimed at man. And then the seventh trumpet judgment, which includes the seven bowl judgments, are against Israel, nature, and man. Now, the seventh Sealed judgment is the finale of the wrath of God. It'll fill up the wrath of God. It will be what takes place just before Jesus Christ comes back to take over the world. He's going to pour out this wrath on this God-mocking, Christ-rejecting, Israel-hating world once and for all. And what we see here is Jesus Christ breaks open the seventh seal. He unleashes the first four trumpet judgments at this moment in the Great Tribulation. Now, there are two main prophetic actions that we want to show you from this chapter tonight. Number one, Christ breaks open the second seal. There are five observations we want to make about this. First of all, the seventh seal is broken open by Jesus Christ. Notice verse 1, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal. When you get here, here we go, this is it. I mean, this is the last seal. It's a seven-seal book of wrath and judgment, and Christ cracks open the final seal. Christ is the one who's controlling and authorizing every single one of these terrible tribulation judgments. Most people just don't realize this about Jesus Christ. He is a loving Savior. He is a Savior who offers salvation to any who will come to him, but he's also a ferocious judge if you don't come to him. He is God. He's worthy to pour out God's wrath in the tribulation, and he will do that in full force. You see, either... The wrath of God is on Jesus Christ, which he took to the cross, or it's on you as an individual if you don't have Jesus Christ in your life. And Jesus Christ, I guarantee you, will pour out his wrath. People need to know this now. They need to know that they can accept Jesus Christ as Savior, or they can face him as a wrath judge. He took upon himself God's wrath to save us, but if a person rejects him, he will pour out God's wrath on them. So there's observation number one. It's Christ who's breaking open the seal. Observation number two, the seventh seal features one half hour of silence. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We referred this morning to one of those one-hit wonders back in 1967 by a group in the UK called the Tremolos who did a song, Silence is Golden. Well, when you come to this part of the scriptures in Revelation, silence is not golden, it will be grim, and it will be a catastrophe. In all the other seal judgments, when they are broken, John saw something or heard something. 
However, when this seal is broken, the thing that stands out, John doesn't hear anything. It's real quiet for about a half hour. Now, if you've ever been in a place where there's going to be a tornado hit, or you've ever been in a place where there's a terrible storm that's about to hit, you'll notice that there is a real seeming dead silence just before that storm comes thundering through. And that's exactly what happens here. What you'll also notice is that this silence is going to last for half an hour. And what that tells us is God has broken the tribulation down into a time frame, into time regulations, even right down to the half hour. Now, in the Old Testament, there are certain references to the fact that when these events occur, there'll be moments of unusual silence. Habakkuk, when he spoke of this, said that the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. Zephaniah said, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah said, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. And when the word silence is used here in verse 1, it literally does refer to an absence of all noise. And the specific location of this silence is in heaven. Now, to this point in the tribulation, heaven has been a place of tremendous nonstop action. I mean, it has been catapulting wrath upon the earth and the activity and the sounds and the flashes of lightning and the thunder roars that have been coming out of heaven have been intense. There's been roaring wrath that's been pouring out of heaven. But when Jesus Christ cracks open this seventh seal, there's going to come an eerie silence to this world. It'll last about a half hour. And there are a couple of reasons why this silence will be here. Number one, it's a last moment where people can think about grace. It's a last moment of grace in which God grants people just a pause, just a pause, before he sets forth the worst part of this tribulation. That quiet should cause Israel and cause any sinner to think seriously about what's happened and what's going to happen. That half-hour pause should be something that causes a person to soberly think about their relationship with the Lord. But, of course, for most, it won't do that. Secondly, this signals to the whole world something major is about to hit. I mean, when people have been hammered through the first six-sealed judgments, and they've been getting one right after another in chronological sequence, and then all of a sudden, you have a half-hour of silence, you've got to be thinking to yourself, if you're here on earth, what's next? What's coming? This is eerie. I mean, we've been hearing nothing but sounds and sights we're seeing from heaven, and now we've got this eerie silence. And thirdly, the silence will set the stage for the final wrath of God, which contains the worst judgments. We suspect that during this silence in heaven, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be communicating what's happening here. And we know from this that a person's life from the scriptures is broken down into days and months. And we could say based on this, a person's life is broken down into days, months, and minutes. There is a 30-minute time interval gap of silence that God will orchestrate out of heaven at this point in the Great Tribulation. The third observation we make is the seventh seal judgment features seven angels who stand before God and are given seven trumpets. Verse 2 said, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, Jewish scholars 
claim that there have always been seven angels who stand before God's throne continually. It may be true. What we do know is seven are here at this point in time. I don't know if I can find passages that actually make that statement, but they probably base it on this particular text that there are seven angels that are before God here. The Great Tribulation is going to feature a lot of angels doing a lot of different things, particularly in regard to the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And in Matthew 13, Jesus Christ is going to use angels to gather people and cast them into burning hell. He said that when he was here. He said those angels will gather people and cast them into hell. Well, at this point, there are seven angels who are given seven trumpets. The trumpets were used in Israel to announce feast days, ceremonial days, war days, and the coming of the Lord Day. And these particular angels will be connected to the final judgments of the world and also national Israel. So there are seven angels that stand before the throne of God. The fourth observation is the seventh seal judgment features another angel who focuses on the prayers of God's people. Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, when the seven angels are handed these trumpets and they're ready to get going, another angel, and it's another of the same kind of angel, it's alos, which means another of the same kind, not heteros, another of a different kind. So this is another of the same kind of high-ranking angel that's at the throne of God. That angel steps forward to offer to God all the prayers of the saints. When we analyze this moment, it's obvious this is a very sacred moment, a very solemn moment in the Great Tribulation. This angel is standing before the altar. That's a sacred place. The angel is holding a golden censer. That's certainly a sacred article. The angel is given much incense. And when we think about the altar and the censer and we think about incense, our mind immediately thinks of Old Testament Israel because they're the ones that had the altar and they had the incense. And I think things are beginning to move toward Israel. This is a sacred moment in the tribulation and things are beginning to move toward Israel. Fourthly, this angel adds this to the prayers of the saints. Now, there is an article, the, before the noun prayers, and the specific article, the, before the noun prayers, and another article before the noun saints. So these are not just any prayers. These are specific prayers that are being made by specific saints. By virtue of the fact there's much incense given in regard to these prayers, they obviously include a vast amount of prayers that are about to be answered, and we suspect that the storage of prayers here is the prayers, thy kingdom come. I mean, for years and years, people have been praying, God, come back and set up your kingdom on this earth. And in order for that to happen, there's the wrath that has to be poured out. The vengeance of God must be poured out before he sets up that kingdom. God's people have been praying that for millenniums. Israel's been hoping that he would come back and set up a kingdom for Israel and reign in total righteousness on this earth and put out all that's evil. And it seems to me what we're learning here is every one of those prayers that have been ever offered pertaining to that issue is released right now and right here. The prayers are said to be in verse 4. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And this is an incense type of prayer, which means it is just a wonderful prayer to the nostrils of God. 
I don't know if you've ever gone into a flower shop, probably most of us have at one time or another, or you've ever gone into a candle shop, but boy, it just smells so good. Just smells good when you walk into those places. There's a fragrance there, a good aura there. That's the way prayers smell to the Lord. There's a fragrance to them when his people pray. There's a sweetness to them. And I think there's something very important here that we can draw in our concept of prayer. First of all, it's very important and very sacred in connection to God working out his program. You know, we pray continually, God, come get us soon, rapture us soon. I believe that works in harmony with the program of God. I don't know how it works. Because God sets the day, God sets the hour, but I do believe when he stirs his people to pray about things, Lord, rapture us soon, I think he lays that on the heart of the people and somehow those prayers are stored up and somehow they play an important role in the finale of things. Secondly, God is a God who answers prayer in his time and not our time. I think it was George Mueller who used to say, the answer to our prayers is always on the way. It's always on the way. But it's coming in God's time, and it's coming in God's way. Thirdly, just because our prayers are not answered immediately doesn't mean they will not be answered eventually. I mean, we pray continually for the rapture of the church. As of this moment, tonight, we haven't been raptured yet. But that doesn't mean it won't happen, and it could happen tonight. And finally, prayers even concerning judgment are viewed as sacred incense by God. We learn that from the Psalms. There are those imprecatory psalms in which God promises he'll answer the prayers of his people and he promised those who were standing there, those martyrs before the throne of God, just wait a while, I'll go down there and settle that score. I mean, they're crying out literally at the throne of God, how long before you'll go down there and take care of our enemies? And those are prayers that are basically viewed as sacred prayers even though God hasn't immediately answered them. Now, the fifth observation is the seventh seal judgment features an angelic reaction to the saints' prayers. Look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now, when this scene takes place, the lamb has broken open the seventh seal, and the angels are standing there before God, and they are given the seven trumpets, and this other angel comes up there, and these prayers of the saints are unleashed before the Lord. There's another angel there who has a reaction to all of this, and there are two angelic reactions. Number one, he's angered in heaven and powerfully demonstrates it on earth. Verse 5 says, the angel took a censer, filled it with fire of the altar, threw it to the earth. This angel who had a censer is so moved by the prayers of God's people and so moved by what's happening here, he emotionally responds even before the first trumpet sounds. He hurls the fire of the altar at the earth, which causes roaring thunder and various sounds and flashes of lightning, and it causes an earthquake. Now keep in mind, at this point in time, things have been quiet for about a half hour. But when this angel does this, the people are going to realize on this earth, boy, this is something serious going to happen. This is something serious that's going to hit. I mean, this is going to signal catastrophic judgment that's on the way. The second reaction that this angel has is the angels prepare for further judgment action. That's what you learn in verse 6. The second reaction is the angel with the seven trumpets. They prepare to blow them. 
William Newell believes that these trumpet blasts will actually be heard on earth, and he's probably right. I actually think you'll see tonight there's this eagle flying in mid-heaven. I think he's actually going to be seen here on this earth. And I think in light of what we've already seen earlier in the tribulation in Revelation, I think it's probably right. When this blast or these blasts go forth, I think people on earth are going to hear them. And this trumpet probably is going to be heard. By this point in the great tribulation, all the people on earth realize these are the judgments of the Lamb. We know when we get to the sixth seal judgment, all the people are saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So there's no misconception about where these judgments are coming from. They're coming directly from God, coming right out of heaven. And at this point in the tribulation period, these people realize this is coming from God. It'll be a terrifying moment. Which brings us to the second action. Four angels pour out four trumpet judgments. Now it's interesting that in chapter 7 and verse 3, you'll remember... The angel said, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the bondservants of our God in their foreheads. So you remember that these angels were ready to go then. But that angel said, now look, your judgment's going to hit the earth. It's going to affect the trees. It's going to affect the water. Would you hold off on that till we seal the 144,000? We saw that last Sunday night. And we cannot help but notice as we look at these verses that the number one-third shows up 13 times. 13 times. It shows up twice in verse 7, once in verse 8, twice in verse 9, twice in verse 10, once in verse 11, and it shows up five times in verse 12. The number three is obviously critical to this part of the context, and certainly that's a number connected to God because it specifically is connected to the number of the Trinity. And we also know that one-third of Israel is going to be saved when the Great Tribulation is over. We also know when these first four trumpet judgments are over, there are three woe judgments yet to occur. Now, the trumpet judgments break down this way. We're going to look at trumpet judgments one to four tonight. They're judgments against nature, the likes of which this world has never seen in verses 7 to 13, and then there's trumpet judgments 5 and 6 that we'll see in Revelation 9 that'll be aimed straight at men, and then you have trumpet judgment number 7, which starts in chapter 11, which includes the seven bowl judgments that will be judgments against Israel, nature, men, and we'll wrap it all up. Now, the first trumpet judgment in the tribulation in seal judgment number 7 is this judgment against vegetation. We read in verse 7, The first sounded, there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. I want to draw your attention to the fact that one-third of the earth is burned up. Show us anywhere in history where that has happened. I challenge anybody to show us anywhere in history where that has happened. There are 57,268,900 square miles on this earth. And when this judgment occurs, 19 million square miles of earth are going to be burned up. Now, to put that in some perspective for you, in the United States, there are 3.8 million square miles. In Russia, there are 6.6 
million square miles. In China, there are 3.7 million square miles. In Canada, there are 3.8 million square miles. And in Australia, there are 2.9 million square miles. If you add all of that up, that's about as much of the world that he's going to destroy at this judgment. That much land is going to be destroyed when he destroys one-third of the earth. And he includes in this first trumpet judgment not only a destruction of the earth, but there's a biological botany judgment. It's a judgment aimed at vegetation on the earth. It destroys grass and trees. It's a judgment of hail and fire sent by God to destroy one-third of the earth's vegetation. I don't think tonight we can even begin to grasp the impact of this. I don't think we can even fathom the idea of how much good grass and trees actually do in our world. I don't think we get it. And people aren't going to get it till they're gone. What's described here is that hail and fire are mixed with blood. And people have said, well, it's just going to be kind of a reddish color to it. But you know what? I pour through the Greek text here and it says it's blood. It says it's blood. And it wouldn't surprise me if it's literal blood. I mean, it could be like hail that's a bloody substance to it or some type of little flake that has blood in it. I mean, it's mixed with blood. And by adding that to this, it's clearly connected to biblical prophecy, which clearly points to the fact that just before God delivers Israel, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed that's going to take place. There are a lot of prophetic references that predict God's going to repeat those Egyptian type of plagues just before he brings Israel into the land in the future. And by virtue of the fact it's mixed with blood would certainly remind those left on earth about those martyrs that they killed and about all the men of God that they've killed throughout the world who are already in heaven. Now plant life and vegetation was originally created by God in Genesis 1.11 on Creative day number three. So when you look at the plant life, you're looking at life that's been in existence since Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11. Plant life and gardens are important. I mean, we know they feed bugs. We know they feed animals. We know they feed humans. Well, at this point, God is going to destroy one-third of it. And the effect is going to be devastating because it will mean that one-third of all contributions that plant life makes to the world, one-third of all contributions that trees make to the world and grass makes to the world, it's going to be gone. And it will be an atmospheric catastrophe. You know, we've just experienced here in our neck of the woods that our yards were drying up, then God sent rain. It's unbelievable, unbelievable to watch this. I mean... I actually like it when it dries up. I don't have to mow, so I actually like it. But you look out at it, and it was yellowish. It was almost dead. And then all of a sudden, God sends refreshing rain, and it's green again. There is going to be no rain here. I mean, when he starts shutting this world down, the rain is gone. He's not going to refresh the world. He's going to dry it up and burn it up. That's trumpet judgment number one. Trumpet judgment number two is a wrath judgment against the oceans. Verse 8 says, the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, the second trumpet judgment is going to be a judgment against the ocean, specifically salt water, salt water oceans. 
This is an oceanographical judgment, a huge burning substance like a mountain. And I believe people are going to see this, by the way. You're talking about destroying a third of the oceans. This is not going to be something that's just going to be quietly happening during the night. I mean, this is going to be major. There's going to be some mountain substance flying out of heaven that will be cast into the sea. It'll destroy one-third of all marine life, one-third of all ships, and people are going to see this catapulting right out of the sky. Zephaniah predicts that God will destroy the fish when he cuts off man from the earth. So this judgment against the ocean water is predicted to occur when God destroys man or when he's in the process of destroying man. Now, oceans cover 70% of the surface of the earth. 97% of earth's water is found in our ocean. And we rely on merchant ships to actually transport things like food and oil and other goods that we need. I mean, merchant ships are out there on the ocean, and right now, as we speak tonight, there are over 50,000 merchant ships that have licenses that conduct trade internationally. In just this one judgment, 16,650 ships are going to be put out of business. This will be devastating to the entire world that's already lost over 2 billion people. And it's just getting worse. Now the substance that God is going to throw into the ocean is a massive burning type of mountain. That's what it looks like. And it appears to be a mountain-like massive meteoric chunk ablaze with fire. That's what it's going to apparently look like, fiery meteor flying out of the sky into the ocean. And the destruction will be such that one-third of all ocean water in the world is going to be gone. I mean, it's not going to be usable for anything. One writer observed, when one considers this judgment and thinks about all the advancements that man has made in science, nothing even begins to compare with what God's going to do here. This judgment will not only affect water, but it'll affect ships and cruise ships and cargo ships and oil ships, all those merchant ships. I mean, a lot of them are going to be lost right then. When this judgment hits, calamity is going to hit those boats on the high seas. One-third of all marine life is going to die at this one judgment. The sea will become blood, literally ima, literally blood. It says that. It says people are going to look at the ocean and go, it's just blood out there. This kind of thing was done on a much smaller scale in the book of Exodus chapter 7. The result of that was there was terrible stench and death. You can imagine what this will be like. Terrible stench and death. Then there's the third trumpet judgment. It's a wrath against fresh water. In verses 10 to 11, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood and the third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. We have 117 million freshwater lakes in the world. And... At this judgment here, almost 39 million of them are going to be destroyed. We have in the United States 250 freshwater lakes, and just this one judgment will shut down 83 of them. The third trumpet judgment is going to be a judgment against freshwater. The third angel releases a great star, which also has a burning fiery look to it. It's going to hit key areas where people get their drinking water. 
The rivers and the springs of water are turned into a very bitter water in this one judgment, and one-third of the world's drinking water is totally and completely destroyed. And people will be able to see this coming straight out of heaven, and there will not be one thing they can do about it. Not one thing. I don't care how many filters they have in their home to try to fill their fresh water, it won't work. The God that they mocked, the God that they denied, will be pouring out his wrath on them, and they know it. Now this flaming star is given a name. The name is Wormwood. This is the only place in the Greek New Testament where it's used. It was used in the Old Testament in a couple of references. It refers to a very bitter and I would suggest poisonous shrub that is known in the Middle East. It was found in Palestine and Syria. It has a putrid smell. In Exodus 15, God turned bitter water into sweet water for his people, but here he's turning all the sweet water into bitter water as a judgment against the whole world. And it's a very bitter substance, apparently, that's so malignant and poisonous that it has the ability to kill people that drink it. At this point in the tribulation period, just through the first three trumpet judgments, one-third of the earth is gone. One-third of all vegetation is gone. One-third of all the ocean water is gone. One-third of fresh drinking water is gone. More than likely, these great lakes of ours will become grave lakes. With billions and billions of people already dead, this will make the world even more of a desperate place. And I suspect, in light of what some other passages of Scripture teach, that as this is going on in the world, that land of Israel is probably still open for business. I suspect that land of Israel is somewhat flourishing. They still have water, as we'll see this thing develop later. They still have good supplies. They're still able to function while the rest of the world is being destroyed. Now, the fourth trumpet judgment is the wrath judgment against heavenly planets in verses 12 to 13. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. The heavenly planets were created by God in Genesis 1.14 on day four of creation. Don't you ever forget that. When you look up into that sky and you see that moon shining beautifully like it has just recently, that has been in that sky since day four of creation. When you look at the sun and the planets, you're looking at something that God has put there. We're looking at the same thing that all people from all of time have looked into the sky and have seen because God put it there. There's an interesting story about Napoleon who was sailing to a location and some men were debating the subject of the existence of God. And Napoleon is reported to have pointed to the stars and said something like this, if you're going to say there's no God, you're going to have to do something about that. Those planets display the glory of God so that men are without excuse. Now this trumpet judgment is going to be a judgment against one-third of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And the judgment will affect every place in the world. It won't matter whether you're in a place where it would be daytime or nighttime because whatever time you're in, this judgment is certainly going to be something that all people are going to see no matter where they're at. 
No matter where they're at on this earth, as they look in the sky, they're going to see the glory of God is beginning to dwindle. And they will also realize the time for light is running out. We don't have much more time. Things are seemingly getting darker and darker here, and the time for light is running out. Now, when you destroy one-third of the sun, the moon, and the stars, you're talking about real climate change. And this is a real climate change that will affect temperatures. It will affect light intensity. It will affect oxygen atmosphere. It's interesting that we live in a time right now in which people are really revved up about solar power. I mean, this is the deal. We need to get solar power. Well, the problem is when you get here, that won't work. You could have put the best solar system in the world in your house, or you could have put it on your campus, or you could put it anywhere in a city. And the fact of the matter is when God starts shutting down the light and God starts shutting down the planet, it's not going to work no matter what kind of power you have. And at this point in the tribulation, one-third of all light is gone. And this world is going to be an eerie place. And as this is happening, just before we get to verse 13, let's recap what's happened here. All Christians departed at the rapture. All Christians left the world. And people were talking about the fact, you know, those Christians are gone. Then you have several Antichrists and the Antichrist, he surfaced. Then you have these major outbreaks of war, both civil, international, and national war that were breaking out. Then you have terrible worldwide famine. Then we're left with those death judgments in which one quarter of the world's population are dead. Then you have these scary, horrible cosmological disasters that we saw in sealed judgment number six. And then you get this half hour of silence. And then after this half hour of silence, you have one third of the earth burned up and one third of the earth's vegetation is gone. One third of the oceans are gone. One third of the drinking water is gone. And one third of the sun, moon, stars is gone. And after you've lived through that, if you live through it, you look up into the sky and you see in midheaven, verse 13, this eagle flying in midheaven, which I understand to mean in the stellar heaven. So you would look up in the sky where you normally see the planets. There are three heavens in the Bible. You have the atmospheric heaven where we breathe oxygen, where the birds fly and the cumulus clouds are. That's the atmospheric heaven. Then you have this stellar heaven where these planets are. Then you have the throne of God heaven, which is the third heaven. Paul said, I was caught up to that. What I understand this to be saying here is that after God has shut down one third of the world, what he's going to do is send this eagle this eagle he's authorizing to fly around in that stellar heaven, and he's going to say with a loud voice, and I believe people are going to literally look in the sky and see this, and this eagle is going to yell with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels that are about to sound. But just imagine this. You've just watched all of this that we just have mentioned there, and now you look into the sky, and here's this eagle and this eagle flying who's saying this, you say, well, how can an eagle talk? God can make a parrot talk. I mean, he can make a crow talk. That's nothing for him. He made a donkey talk. I mean, that's what God has the capable of doing. He's authorizing, as I understand it here, a giant eagle to fly through the sky and announce this. And people on this earth are going to see this. They're going to experience things like they've never experienced before. And the woe judgments that they're about to get into are nothing compared to what we've already gone through. They're worse. They're worse. 
It'll be an eerie time, a scary time. Show me anywhere in history where this stuff has happened. It hasn't happened. It's yet to happen. And if we're near the rapture, it's on the verge of happening. One of my favorite old Bible teachers was H.A. Ironside. He was a, a man who really influenced Mr. Miles, skilled, skilled man of the word. Mr. Miles went to the service one night in Dallas, Texas on a Sunday night. He said Ironside didn't have to speak that night. He slipped into the service, sat in the back, didn't want to be noticed. He just sat in the back, and the minister looked out in the audience. He saw H.A. Ironside sitting there, and he said, I see we have a real distinguished Bible expositor in attendance tonight. Dr. Ironside, would you come up and share something with us this evening? So Dr. Ironside got up and went to the pulpit. He asked the minister, what scripture did you read tonight? And the man told him, and Mr. Miles said, as I recall, it was a scripture out of Ezekiel. And so he opened his Bible to Ezekiel, and he just expounded it. That's how much that man knew the word of God. Mr. Miles said when he was working at Dallas Seminary, when Ironside would come there to do lectures, he said he would actually go and pull a book, a commentary off the shelf and he would read it. He said the next year he's back to do lectures. He goes back, gets the same book, remember where he's at, picks it up, and he reads it again. Ironside was just saturated with the word of God. H.A. Ironside said this. I have searched the Bible through and through, over and over again. And I cannot find one ray of hope for men and women who leave this world rejecting Jesus Christ. He said, I cannot find the slightest hope in the Bible for a Christ rejecter. And if you happen to be here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, don't reject him anymore. Invite him into your life to be your Savior. These wrath things you'll escape if you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for the fact that you've saved us in your grace. Thank you for Jesus Christ and what he did. Thank you that this one who's pouring out wrath also took upon him your wrath. We're grateful that he took our sin and wrath upon him so that we might have everlasting life. We thank you for this good day we've had together of worship. It's been a blessed day, Lord. We thank you for it. We pray that you would just dismiss us with your blessings tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.